Hello and welcome to In Theory. I'm Maria Sachikosa-Siri. And I'm Naran Khan. In Theory is the podcast where we talk about the theories that help us make sense of the world. This week, we're exploring the billion-dollar wedding industrial complex. We'll first tackle the state of weddings today by teasing out what planning one of these things typically looks like. We'll then dive into exactly what we mean by the term wedding industrial complex and its origins. Next, we'll explore the idea of invented traditions, traditions that give the impression of being old, but which are actually quite recent, or even, gasp, made up. We'll wrap up with helpful takeaways for all of your wedding planning, attending, and avoiding needs. Naran, do you want to get us started? I would be glad to. Let's kick it off by talking about the state of weddings today. I think it's safe to assume that we've been to plenty of weddings. Is that the case, Maria? Indeed, I have. Okay, and I may have even been to my own. Um, (laughs) So we all know what it looks like from the guest perspective, but to kind of shed some light on the industry, we thought it might be helpful to share a sampling of tasks identified by a wedding planning checklist. This one in particular was published by Real Simple Magazine, and it's apparently the ultimate wedding planning checklist. And there are just some, like, very hilarious tidbits. Okay, well, this is going to be very interesting to me because I have never planned a wedding. I have only just turned up and enjoyed the fruit of other people's wedding planning. (laughs) So I, I know none of this stuff. I think you're going to be blown away by the level of detail and concern Okay, so 16 to 9 months before the wedding, they say that you should start start a wedding folder or binder. Oh my and, god, 16 yeah. months. <laughs> <laughs> but but the specific instructions are better. They're begin leafing through bridal, lifestyle, fashion, gardening, design and food magazines for inspiration. It's like a full-time job. It is. Get it, girl. <laughs> oh my god. It's bad. It's good. Okay. And then it looks like in that same timeline, you're also supposed to pick your wedding party. So is that like bridesmaids and groomsmen and that kind of thing? Exactly. And the instruction for that says, as soon as you're engaged, people will start wondering who's in. So worry about the people. Ouch. (laughs) Um, And I just wanted to share two others. You know, we'll post the checklist for you all to check out yourselves too. But eight months before, you have to remember to register and sign up at a minimum for three retailers. So remember that. Wow. The final one I'll share is arrange transportation, again, eight months before. And consider limos, minibuses, trolleys, and town cars. But know that low-to-the-ground limos can make entries and exits dicey if you're wearing a fitted gown. Hmm. So, Wouldn't have thought of that. No. So many questions, so many things to worry about. But that's just a taste, and we wanted to share it with our beloved listener. Yeah. Good um, to know. <laughs> And let's maybe dive into some kind of current stats. Uh, The Knot, which is a wedding website. If you've been to a wedding, you may have been to a wedding website hosted by The Knot. They do surveys of their kind of wedding couples. And their 2014 Real Wedding Survey, published earlier this year, really hits at some of the main points. Average cost of a wedding. Maria, I don't know if you are kind of can take a guess at these stats, but excluding the honeymoon, (laughs) do you have any thoughts? I don't know. I mean, I've heard that it can be in the tens of thousands. Yeah. How about three tens? Um, It's $31,213. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) 
I mean, average may not be the most useful stat. The median, which some some researcher dug into on Slate, was identified as like eighteen thousand, so okay. like a little bit less, but wow. still pretty substantial. Still a new car. Yeah. Right. Most expensive and least expensive places to get married. Do you have any guesses on those? I would guess the most expensive in America would be in the big cities like New York, San Francisco, that kind of thing. On it, yeah. Manhattan, $76,328. Wow. And the least expensive was actually Utah, 15257 Everyone's moving to Utah. I know. So, I mean, this is just a quick jump into the numbers. When we talk about a, you know, wedding industrial complex, we're talking big numbers, and the stats kind of most certainly back that up. So, okay. So when we say wedding industrial complex, we're talking about weddings, obviously, and industry. But maybe we could talk a little more concretely about what that term means. Oh, most certainly. So the name comes from Dwight D. Eisenhower's military-industrial complex in his 1961 farewell address to the nation when he referred to the conjunction of an immense military establishment with a large arms industry. Okay. And that's kind of served as the origins of, like, many things that are identified as, like, similar complexes. I think it might be useful to think about a definition for the wedding-industrial complex, which... This is our this is our true in theory homemade definition, <laughs> which is the conjunction of an immense culture of consumption and social expectations, and a large professionalized wedding industry. Yeah. So this idea that you'll have some part of life that doesn't necessarily obviously require major industry behind it being merged together with giant corporate practices that are motivating and and really driving it. And this idea of the wedding industrial complex has been sort of bouncing around for a little while. Um, And we should note that we're really mostly talking about Western and American norms here. Although this idea of a super expensive wedding that has a whole army of people that you hire behind it is something that's definitely spreading around the world. And may actually be not even spreading, but common to other cultures. I know in you know, South Asian weddings can definitely be very big and over the top and very extravagant. But in other kind of in other instances, it really is the American traditions that are spreading elsewhere, um, particularly we've seen like examples in, in Asia, elsewhere in Asia. What you're saying is a really good point. It's not just that weddings are big, right, because weddings have been big for a long time for a lot of different reasons and even expensive for a long time um, for a lot of different re- reasons. But what we're talking about here, you know, is the fact that there's a huge corporate industry behind turning weddings into this big, expensive event. Yep, totally fair. And maybe one of these big corporate enterprises might even be Disney. (laughs) Oh my god, I want to talk about Disney all the time. It's kind of like the Hunger Games Part 2. Yes, please. (laughs) It's the other thing I always want to talk about. Yeah, so what were we going to say about Disney? Well, just that they're set up to really cater to kids, but as, as you grow up, being able to integrate the fantasy with your reality, most obviously, like in a wedding, can be the case. I mean, they have actually Disney branded weddings and Disney branded wedding dresses, which are. I don't, did you look at any of the photos of these things? Yes, absolutely. I mean, actually, full disclosure, I have no. written an academic article about <laughs> Disney's 2008 film Enchanted. And in it, I'm talking about the Disney Princess franchise, which, by the way, has only been around since the late 1990s. 
It has. It was only, the franchise was only created in the late nineties. The article was looking at how they u- started to use films targeted as adults to start to bridge that princess culture from childhood into teenagerdom and into adulthood. And a lot of the that film and many of the kind of Disney productions aimed at adults are focused on helping adults see how they can lead fairy tale lives in mm. everyday modernity. So like Once Upon a Time, the TV show on ABC yeah. um, is all kind of based on Disney narratives and ABC is owned by Disney. And that wow. film, uh, that show very much does the same thing. Well, so I wonder if this was like, you know, if you say the late 1990s, whether that was correlated or caused the kind of weddingization of prom too like this stuff mm. is happening all together at once and when i say that i mean promposals i don't know how familiar you are, you are with promposals. what is a promposal <laughs> it's asking someone to prom in a very over-the-top way it's um it's excruciating actually also like taking prom photos like wedding photos yeah. i mean this is like a whole world of stuff Wait, is this like different? Is this different from the photos that you take in the high school gym with the amazing like nineties backgrounds? backgrounds? Yeah, and let someone's hands around your waist. Yeah, no, these are real different. These are like actually like it's like a whole subculture of photographers that get really excited about because it's another excuse for over the top photos. Oh my god! Yeah, this is so expensive. <laughs> Life is expensive. So all of this kind of was to you know to wrap us up real quickly, like a way to understand what weddings look like today. I think it's fair to say the wedding industrial complex is a marriage of Uh uh, constructed wedding traditions and capitalist industry, and it's created some very, very expensive expectations for one's wedding day. How did we get into this stressful, expensive wedding industrial situation? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I I love going to weddings, but I feel like many people I know are more stressed out about the organizational process than they are excited about actually attending their own weddings. So one of the theories that I'm turning to to help us think about this is the idea of invented traditions. Um, and as we mentioned at the intro, these are traditions that give the impression of being old, but which are actually really recent or even totally fabricated. Um, there's a collection of essays from the 80s edited by E.J. Hobsbawm and T.O. Ranger, which you know, basically gets directly into this question. And and that collection doesn't talk about weddings at all, but it includes a bunch of other examples of uh, traditions that seem like they've been around forever, but actually um, were invented for various political or commercial reasons. Um, one really great example um, is a Scottish Highlander tradition of kilts and clan tartans. So no way. Those, yeah. So for those of <laughs> you who are like watching Outlander and getting all flushed at the the kiltish adorableness of Jamie Fraser in the Highlands. It's more recent than one would ever think. I really thought these people were running around in like the single digit centuries wearing kilts. So that's the idea is that, you know, kilts were invented by a tailor from England and um, it was only because of political dissent that they were actually banned and then ended up becoming a symbol of Highlander tradition when in fact that tradition did not even exist really before the 17th, 18th centuries. Wow. Yeah, yeah pretty crazy. Really crazy. So you're saying this happens in weddings too. Maybe all of our cherished 
societal traditions around weddings may not have been around since the beginning of time? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the the difference here is it's not saying that certain customs haven't been around for a long time, but the traditions associated with them uh, are are not unchanging. They, as we know, you know, as we've seen, in fact, very recently with the Supreme Court ruling about same-sex marriage, weddings and marriages change all the time, and there are yeah. a lot of uh, traditions around it that that are constantly in flux, and that's a good thing. But a lot of the elements that go into a modern wedding really were created by this wedding industrial complex in the 20th century, mostly since the Second World War. So let's talk about some of these. Like, maybe maybe we can maybe talk about the most obvious one, which is wedding dresses. I assume people, when they got married, they wore nice things. But were they always the five, ten, plus thousand dollar wedding dresses? Yeah, definitely not. I mean, even the fact of wedding dresses being white, that's something that really started only in the 19th century, and only really with really wealthy people um, were wearing white dresses. Sure, the symbol of purity was part of it, but um, a lot of it had to do with the fact that white was just expensive to keep clean, so it was like a status symbol and a way of showing that you had the money to maintain a white dress. And I mean, that's kind of continued to this day with the idea of a a wedding dress that you only wear once. So it's a status symbol to be able to buy a dress that you only ever have to wear one time. But yeah, I mean, people have always wanted to wear something nice, but the idea of this big ball gown situation, that is also quite recent. A lot of the stuff um, really took off after World War II with the rise of synthetic fabrics um, and bridal gown manufacturers who were looking for exemptions for wartime restrictions. Um, and they were kind of arguing that it kept up morale to for women to be able to have these luxury items. And they were able to get that exemption and make some money off of advertising that this is what a all-American wedding should look like. That kind of blows my mind. And it kind of reminds me of one of the stats from the from the Knot a survey I was talking about earlier. Uh, the, the average cost of a wedding dress is $1,300. Wow. Which is a lot for a single-use dress. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and another, another invented tradition that people may have heard about is engagement rings. Engagement rings also give the sense of having been around forever as, you know, the kind of the diamond solitaire as a timeless symbol of love. But actually, that, that was something that was also really largely constructed primarily in America and then kind of spreading around the world from there starting in the 20th century. I think I read somewhere that um, 75% of American women who are engaged wear diamond wow. engagement rings. Which is really incredible. I mean, this it grew out of the advertising campaign that De Beers Mining a Diamond Company put into place um, because they had started doing all this diamond mining in South Africa, but had way too many diamonds and not enough buyers. So starting in the late 1930s, they hired an advertising company to make Americans buy diamonds. And uh, the the term, a diamond is forever, is an ad line that was written by a copywriter, um, Francis Garrity. And it's helped to transform what was that was just like one of many gems, not necessarily yeah. a special one, into the symbol of love and marriage in America. It's so, I mean, it's supremely powerful. 
Totally. And in fact, there was an article a couple decades ago, actually, um, which was, you know, about have you ever tried to sell a diamond? And the oh, point no. of it was that selling diamonds, again, is very difficult to do because they don't have very much resale value. The idea of, of a diamond is forever has kind of successfully convinced people that is a good investment when in fact, financially, it's not a good investment. They also place diamonds in Hollywood films, um, create a series of portraits of stars and socialites who are wearing diamonds. Oh my gosh. Um, and in 1947, they even had a strategy. I don't, I don't know actually if this ended up happening or not. Um, but they had a strategy to give lectures at high schools that focused on the importance of the diamond engagement ring. So it was a total oh full-scale indoctrination <laughs> of you know this is what the fabulous and wealthy do, and if you want to be fabulous, then you have to purchase these things and own them as well. I mean, this is a straight-up attempt to generate widespread aesthetic taste and marketing demand by creating the impression that elite people hold a particular taste. I mean, it, it worked. I, I mean, there's no, I don't even know of a greater or more tremendous success story than this because it took something that already existed and did this, so it wasn't even a newly created something. Oh, that's so true. I mean, and it's, and it's really interesting and, and, you know, kind of subversive the way they managed to use advertising to really cre- create taste and to take advantage of people's insecurities about you know, how to make yourself better in the world. So there's a book by um, a really famous French sociologist, Pierre Bourdieu, called Distinction, a Social Critique of the Judgment of Taste. Um, And, you know, it's really all about how taste gets made. And a lot of his argument is really that people with less cultural capital will accept the tastes of the elite. And cultural capital is like non-financial social assets. So like education, exposure to high culture, um, that kind of thing. So like um, in My Fair Lady with Eliza Doolittle. Yeah. Uh, So she's, it's all about like giving her cultural capital by helping her acquire the right vocabulary and clothing and way to act and that kind of thing. Um, And actually... In Clueless, when Cher is educating Ty and how to be cool, that's also yes. a kind of education in cultural capital. Oh, go ahead. Or maybe even me getting my um, Goop newsletter is a way for Gwyneth Paltrow to teach me how to be. What? <laughs> <laughs> just a thought. Just a thought. But kind of all of Wait, these like celebrity did... lifestyle brands are like that. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, you know, what the diamond industry managed to do was to – convince people that the way that elite people show love is by buying diamond engagement rings. And so then everybody bought diamond engagement rings. And now if you don't buy an engagement ring, it's kind of like you're cheap or you don't love the person that you're getting engaged to. Yeah. So take note. No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, I don't know. I wonder what you think about this. Like, do you feel like we all just got conned into thinking that we need this wedding stuff? Yeah. Um, Or do we have some agency here? Do people, everyday people, you know, are they part of the system in a way that's not just being taken advantage of? I'm I'm probably a little of both, but I, I lean towards the industry and like bigger factors that we don't even know about, you know, influencing us. I, I feel strongly like there's so much that's going on that's like, and we've talked about this before, that we can't even recognize. There's so many things that are operating that we have no idea are happening. And mm-hmm. we don't actually have true agency unless we can know all the factors that, you know, at play when we're consuming something or, you know, taking part in something. So we may think, you know, lots of things are personal choices, but we just have no idea about the, like, odds stacked against our choice. 
um, that we can't see. I don't know. What do you think? No, I agree. I mean, it raises a really interesting question about what does it mean to have desires? Because, you know, the question is not just do I want this or not, but did someone else plant the seeds ahead of time of what I want? So even if I genuinely want something, is it because I was placed into a situation where I had very little choice as to whether or not I was going to want it? Did you watch The Devil Wears Prada? Absolutely. That reminds me of uh, the the moment, the key moment in the in the movie when Meryl Streep's character points to the sweater that Anne Hathaway's character is wearing, and mm-hmm. is like, "You think you just bought this plain plain person sweater somewhere, but a decision I made several years ago in this very room led to the creation of that sweater." It's just so powerful mm. um, in in talking about like how taste is created, and even if you think you opt out of something. Everything is touched by these like bigger factors. It's really powerful. I'm getting married in the morning. Ding ding dong, they're gonna chime. Kick up a rumpus. Don't lose your compass. Get me to the church. Get me to the church. For Pete's sake, get me to the church on time. So, so who who are the tastemakers here when it comes to weddings today, um, or how do we figure out like what's in what's in vogue? Um, yeah, I mean, is it is it all about the elite? And again, like, what do we mean by the elite? Because you know, Bourdieu suggests that that's who we're looking to, but it's not like I'm carefully reading the society pages to see what the wealthiest Americans are doing. I think you're standing in the grocery store line looking at People magazine and seeing Lauren Conrad's wedding. Like, <sighs> I think I, I think that they're just – it. like, wedding culture permeates everything now. And it's not limited to wedding and bridal magazines, right? Mm, that's so true. It also reminds me – I don't know if you were a past View watcher, but Star Jones uh, got married when she was a host of The View. Mm-hmm. And she was, like – she left the show in part related to this, but, like, she was trying to get freebies for her wedding by, like, Mm. not auctioning off different things, but getting sponsors, basically, for parts of her wedding and, like, leading the audience through every aspect of planning. Yeah, I mean, you're you're so right that the number of celebrity weddings that are opened up to the public um, either to make money for the celebrity, to make money for the um, publication that's sharing these images or some combination which is usually the case or maybe even Uh, charity even some of them do it for charity because they think the pictures are going to leak anyways which is what i think the Clooney's did right right it's so interesting because what it does is it ends up kind of acknowledging that there is a wedding industrial complex and to try to claim a place within it um maybe celebrities who are making money off of their weddings are just saying well i'm not just gonna shell out dough you're gonna have to give some to me too yeah um i think Our favorite relentless capitalist, Lauren Conrad, who I mentioned before, was Mm -hmm. super clever. She got married last year, and she had – I mean, she had all of her bridesmaids wear bridesmaids' dresses that uh, ended up being sold by Paper Crown, I think, her her fashion company. Mm -hmm. So, like, her wedding was a walking catalog for other things she sells. It was so seamlessly integrated and really quite clever. Right. 
Um, it's, it is really interesting how we want to think of weddings as, on the one hand, this really intimate, personal thing that we do and something that's totally outside of the realm of the market. But at the same time, it's so deeply embedded in it um, that some people have chosen to take advantage of that and to really make it part of their business plan or business strategy. Don't hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I guess a takeaway here is that weddings weren't always the way they are today, uh, but companies have done a damn fine job of making it feel like all the stuff involved today is both traditional and necessary, thanks invented traditions. A kiss on the hand may be quite continental, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. A kiss may be grand, but it So today we learned a couple of things. The wedding industrial complex is a marriage, I love puns, of constructed <laughs> wedding traditions and capitalist industry that has created some very seriously expensive and exhausting expectations for today's weddings. And as Maria just said, we learned that weddings weren't always this way, but companies have very effectively convinced a whole society that all of this stuff is both traditional and necessary. But we can take charge of our own ceremonies and decisions. So here's some advice going forward. If you're getting married, you're not beholden to this. I know this because I was recently married and I was grappling with this stuff too. We get it. There are pressures, family pressures and other pressures that you're probably dealing with. But there's also a robust, if small, culture of people who do things their own way. Be creative and don't get sucked into the wedding behemoth. And if you're a guest at someone else's wedding, just go with the flow. And if you're supporting a friend through this process, try to be a voice of reason without judgment. Finally, if you're not sure you're into this whole wedding thing anyway, you've got options. You don't have to have a wedding or even get married, but that's a conversation for another day. Look, lots of other things in our consumption-driven culture have been constructed by marketers and people who benefit from our spending. But weddings are just so expensive and so much time is spent on them that they deserve a little extra scrutiny. I agree. All right. Thanks so much, Naran, and thanks everyone for listening. Questions, comments, ideas, we'd love to hear from you at intheorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find past podcasts and more info about us at intheory.us or on our Facebook page. Please subscribe to In Theory on iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. And please, please shoot your friends an email and tell them to listen to us too. In Theory is produced with the support of Experimental Humanities and Human Rights Radio at Bard College. Music composition and art design by the incredible Aaron Taylor Waldman. Thanks for listening.